but the kind of best outcome for us is every time that claim gets put into a conversation on social media or whatever, then somebody, one of our kind of army of supporters or people who are, they'll, they'll see it and then they'll sort of chase it. So it kind of, you know, seems to follow the thing around, which we've had some success in with some of our bigger fat checks. Ladies, gentlemen, everybody, welcome back to Media Voices. We take a look at everything that's gone on in the media world over the past week and then condense it down into a 30-minute show for you, just so you can easily digest it all. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from my interview with Alistair Bryan, who is the fact-checking lead at The Ferret. So we had a great chat about the realities of modern fact-checking. Basically, it's like Sisyphus on steroids, how to win over new readers who don't have a pre-existing trusted relationship with you, and how community is at the heart of any sustainable revenue stream. And in a completely unrelated main story. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Before that, though, we're going to get into our main story, and I've titled this one The Revenge of the Platisher because no. dialogue, oh, come that's on, disgusting. why not? <laughs> but a discussion that I thought was done has suddenly like returned like a universal monster has just like sat up in its coffin again so basically this all began when neil young pulled his back catalog of music from spotify he's got a heart of gold especially when you hear the reasons for doing so he objects to spotify monetizing the conspiracies and misinformation from some of its exclusive podcasts joe rogan in particular and so it's reopened that discussion about the extent to which spotify and other platforms are acting as publishers when they choose to directly fund creators and exclusively distribute the results. This is a weird one in, in so many ways, not least because... Neil Young. Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, people of a certain age or people of a certain uh, good taste love Neil Young. <laughs> Can and I anything... say, I saw um, James Blunt threatened to put new music on Spotify <laughs> if it didn't pull Joe Rogan. <laughs> it was a really good gag from him. He's so funny on Twitter. He is funny really, on Twitter, yeah. yeah. So, Neil Young's right. Well, the thing is, it, he, didn't, he didn't start by pulling it off, did he? He, he issued a Spotify ultimatum. Yeah, exactly, yeah. You either sort out what's going on with the misinformation here and start removing some of the episodes that promote it, or you take my music off and Spotify are like, okay, bye. And I think a lot of people were a little bit like, there was, there was almost no hesitation from Spotify just being but like, that's, okay, that's because That's because Spotify's confusing this with past spats they've had with artists okay i okay i I disagree with that actually which bit the fact that (laughs) they're confusing this with past spats i think this is them okay i don't think they're confusing alone and going and the amount they've spent on joe rogan and going we need to protect our investment fair enough but i think their attitude they're they're just repeating the attitude that they've brought to other artists other artists have said you're not paying me enough and they've gone okay well bye yeah and this is different. Eamon Ford on The Guardian, writing in The Guardian, is brilliant on this. Absolutely brilliant. Um, he, said, he said, fighting Rogan's corner could prove to be Spotify's most reckless, arrogant, and hubristic decision <laughs> yet. The ultimate cost <laughs> being not its market cap, which actually tanked, but its reputation, its listeners' loyalty, and its soul. Because that's, it's, it's yeah. applied a, a commercial lens to this. I think it could rapidly end up being one because I think this is going to snowball. Like, as of 15 minutes ago, Joni Mitchell has yeah. said, mm. pull my catalogue too, please. 
well how how many leaving do you think it would take to put that to put enough pressure on spotify so but it's it's pressure to either start vetting rogan right or to effectively admit that they are a publisher and take mm-hmm. responsibility for that and that's remember that- there was a couple of months ago a bunch of spotify employees effectively said no we need editorial oversight mm-hmm. for some of this and apparently that did not work that's where i feel sorry for spotify because if they've got like Joe Rogan, you can fact check Joe Rogan. He's huge, and there's a target there. But think of all the nut jobs making podcasts. Well, Spotify a... say that they've they've actually got that bit nailed. They say that they've removed over twenty thousand podcast episodes related to COVID misinformation, right. but they then don't consider. Well, they they've not been very forthcoming on whether they consider what Joe Rogan is saying is misinformation. Well, okay, so in that sense, I don't feel any sympathy for Spotify. <laughs> no. <laughs> Because this, this is this purely is... down to money. That was a turnaround. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel nothing, nothing, no sympathy whatsoever. I'm finally of the age where I can say I've seen all this come around before. You have, yeah, absolutely. Yay! This is the same question we had where they say as soon as we start vetting or, or as soon as we start saying, no, that's over the line, they've got to draw the line somewhere and that is going to put them in conflict with Joe Rogan. And at that point, they take on... Um, what Facebook have had to take on, what all the platforms have to take on, where they say we are going to have to, we we are going to have to say that this is true and this is not, and we remove that, and, and they have to draw those lines, and they don't want to have to do that. Facebook resisted that for five, six years until they eventually got to the stage. They're like, no, we actually until we had a frigging yeah. attempted coup in Washington well, look how, DC. Exactly, yeah, look how that worked out. Spotify <laughs> need to get in there now but before even, there is a, before there is a coup. The, and this is kind of where it comes back to: is is Spotify have now finally got to that position where they've 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 got to draw those same lines. You've got to reckon when the World Health Organization comes out and backs Neil Young. Mm. <laughs> you you, you kind of have to twig to be in on the wrong side of history here. <laughs> Surely. Not, yeah. So there's a good quote from, uh, well, it's a good tweet actually from Benedict Evans who says, You can be a neutral hosting company with no oversight of legal content, or you can be a network and a publishing system and drive recommendations and discovery and charge a premium for that, but probably not both. Yeah. So, okay. And Substack has also hit this problem uh, yeah. this week again, hasn't it? Because that's been in the headlines because they've said uh, yeah. we're, we're completely like we are completely neutral. We're not even going to attempt to. The sense is not the right word, is it? They've got, I think they've maybe got a slightly stronger argument because they have don't they? have, yeah, because they don't have the, just what Benedict Evans has said, they don't have this, they're not pushing recommendations the same way. I mean, they do. They are. No, you get the odd (laughs) newsletter saying, you should read this. They're not on the same industrial scale that Spotify Mm. is. But in a sense, because because the community is almost more closed and it's more intimate, it's more dangerous. It's a Facebook group situation. Exactly. Um, And, and, you know, Substack at some point, maybe not this year, maybe next year, it it will have to have that reckoning. So the problem is that we were discussing that in terms of it being kind of analog, and that those Substack does a lot of the same stuff that Spotify does, albeit to different, you know, in different mediums into different communities. It's it's not that it's not an analog problem; it's a digital problem. The second you start commissioning content, even if you then, you know, the vast majority of the people who you don't who use your system don't get paid directly from you, they are in the same yeah. ecosystem. So you are effectively a publisher at that point, and therefore should should be moderating fact checking and just making sure that you're not directly funding misinformation yeah and you know so it's not easy like like google's had this 
so you know last last year it worked it did work quite hard to pull down a lot of um the the fake news sites the vaccine misinformation sites that said we're actually going to defund them so mm-hmm. i think the daily mail ended up being defunded for like a couple of days <laughs> yeah that was but great. it's it, it, again when money comes into it it, it suddenly that there's suddenly a load more responsibility that you can't be seen to be profiting from this um so, so yeah I, I, I don't envy spotify right now but they've got to they've got to sort this out also, can I just say this is the quickest fulfillment of a prediction I've ever had. It's not even the end of January yet, and already my my doom prediction from December has come come true. There's some really stupid takes on this. There's one guy I saw I follow on Twitter. He's a. Can, it's a shame we're not on video, Chris, but he's a futurist. <laughs> yeah, Peter's doing the bunny ears. And, uh, he's like, can anyone? <laughs> Can anyone name five Neil Young songs? No, thought not. And it's like, one, you're a dick. <laughs> of course you can name five Neil Young songs. Which particular decade would you like five from? But the other, you know, the, the, the bigger point to that is, I can't name five Stormzy songs or five Taylor Swift songs. That doesn't mean that Stormzy and Taylor Swift don't matter. It's just ridiculous. It's this bullshit or oh, Neil Young's just a... a person from another age that's well, making music and it's just oh, just pathetic what's the counter argument can you name five joe rogan podcasts because surely there, that's I, the, there's a question has any of us ever listened to a joe rogan podcast only like clips and that's enough to put yeah. me off yeah I, it keeps getting flagged so I'll, I'll watch him so he did that thing with jordan peterson and I was oh there you yeah. go so All i was you needed clips to know. of that just to kind of know your enemy but, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's ridiculous that kind of confirmation bias feedback loop where they just agree with one another into a conspiracy that <laughs> you can I see them getting if... generated as they go. It'll be interesting by the time this actually goes out how many artists have, yeah. have joined. The two of them. On, let's 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 pick our favourite artist that will leave Spotify because. All right, of so it. we are recording this. Uh, it, this is now ten twenty six on Saturday morning. <laughs> by the time this goes out, seven a.m. Monday. Who do you think the biggest artist oh, to hold? Oh, nice. Now, Peter, you said Taylor Swift. I was just I thinking think Taylor she, Swift. But I she's was like, thinking Taylor Swift. She, yeah, she's very anti-Spotify in the first place. But yeah, has she got that social justice thing going on? Absolutely, she does now. Yeah, yeah, she, she has now. She's yeah, well on it. Yeah, if Tasteway hasn't pulled her catalogue <laughs> by the time Monday rolls around, well, I guess we lose the bet. And onto the news in brief, which feels like yet more platforms. Um, so Google has come up with another plan for replacing third-party cookies, which are due to be phased <laughs> out by the end of next year. Um, its initial suggestion... Whoa, 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 whoa. Did they really have a plan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. They've scrapped Flock. Mm. Oh, for Flock's sake. So, so Flock was sort of last year's thing, the federated learning of cohorts. Um, but that got panned by uh, both sides. <laughs> Privacy advocates were saying it didn't go far enough, and the rest of the industry was saying it, it was um, untenable. So, um, oh, give power to Google, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So instead, it's using with a capital T topics, um, where advertisers. Hazel, not in every bite. That <laughs> you two are too young to remember topics, aren't no, you? No, I, I remember topics. Yeah. They're in celebrations. Oh, Hazel, not in every <laughs> Oh, they are in celebrations. And I will it say will this is also them. so. Um, this is the way Facebook has operated its own internal advertising mm. system for quite a while. In that, you know, if you click on a page about um, dogs, it will say, "Oh, we think you probably like dogs," and it'll it'll give you a dog sort of dog tag doesn't sound right. It'll, it'll assign <laughs> you that that topic of dogs, and it'll That's say, "Hey, you probably some... like dogs." 
That's some deeply sophisticated target shit there, right there. When well, this, I, is, this, this is it. Isn't this just contextual advertising again? Basically. When, yeah. a, when a dog food company then says, hey, I want to find people who are interested in dogs, it says, hey, here are a load of people who like who like who have looked at dog stuff. Um, Facebook's advertising system is obviously way more complicated than that, but that's it has done the, the topic style stuff for quite a while. Um, and what Google are now saying you'll be able to do, which again is what Facebook have done for a while, is you'll be able to go in and edit your topics and say, mm. actually, I didn't mean to click on that page about dogs. I'm not interested in dogs. Can you please, like, I'm not not bothered. Stop showing me dog food ads. I, when I looked at this, and, and when I include the link in the show notes, when I looked at this, it looked incredibly limited compared to what third-party cookies can do. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing, but I don't think advertisers will be very happy with it. I almost feel sorry for Google. No, okay, but as with Spotify, you'll turn around on that in twenty seconds. Absolutely. Google, <laughs> remember, if 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 I search, if I then search for something on Google's own platform, Google can keep that information about me because that's not third party. There you go. There we are. <laughs> um, I, I think possibly the one benefit is that it it's it's sort of demonstrating again, like you said, the power of contextual advertising, and I think that will be a good thing for publishers in that if you're looking at these topics and saying, yeah, it's a bit vague. I'm not sure I'm going to actually hit my audiences. You might instead choose to go to dogs daily and advertise on there which is good for publishers okay people media voices public service announcement if you are a publisher struggling to get your head around this google bullshit what you need to do is sort out your own first party data Mm. you need to get registered users you need to build your communities and you need to not rely on these people I think Thanks. I think Peter just did some actual advice for publishers, which is not our usual MO. <laughs> Thanks, for, Thanks for listening. All right, moving on. Uh, Tortoise, the kind of slow news brand, I think we all know and kind of admire what they're trying anyway, has raised another $10 million from investors. Uh, Esther, you rightly pointed out that they already do podcasts. The Press Gazette headline on this says that they are pivoting into podcasting. Effectively, they're launching more. Um, it's the latest move from the slow news startup to create more touch points, at least with its members. Um, it kind of had a very, very difficult year because its core tenet of thinking, so those community meetups, were effectively wiped out by the pandemic. They transitioned relatively quickly to kind of virtual meetups, but it wasn't quite the same. So in its latest published accounts for the year to December 2020, it recorded a total loss to date of $8.5 million. That's jump change compared to some publishers, but for a kind of a startup, that's not great compared to a loss to date of $5.4 million in 2019. It's based on the idea of kind of directly monetizing through community. So there's a lot of kind of interchangeable ideas there. Hopefully, it's something that everyone can sort of get around in the next year and really start monetizing their audience who believes in them. That's a really nice feature idea. Yeah. Who do we hope wins? Brands that we hope win. We could do it once a year. Yeah. Sell sponsorship. Yeah. Retire. Question mark, uh, question, question mark, profit. <laughs> Newspaper group Archant is up for sale 18 months after private equity company R Capital bought them and promised a bright future. Um, I don't really understand this one, to be honest. I don't, I don't think the people in, internally at Archant do. There was yeah. kind of the, the notes I've seen suggest that this was relatively sudden, shocking to them. And they said, you know, a couple of people have tried to play off those. Oh, you know, R Capital is never going to be our forever home. But yeah, this is such a. Why would our capital put it up for sale just 18 months? Because they disposed of, uh, what do you call it, a uh, new European, mm. really quite quickly, right? Yeah. And then nothing, and then this, and it's just like, I don't know, it's a weird one. Anyway, um, 
so Archon publishes dozens of titles, and lots of local newspapers. Um, there are other people interested. Actually, the same people that was interested the first time, it was up for sale before our capital bought them. So you got National World, which runs about hundred local titles, with the Scotsman and the Yorkshire Post. You got News Quest, which has got about two hundred regional titles, and then of course Reach, Reach, which has many, many more and. If that happens, we're back to Ofcom, um, <laughs> I would suggest, or everyone is suggesting, because you're in that situation where one company owns a lot of local press. Well, know. you know, if we're talking about people we want to see succeed, it's the local titles. Yeah. Mm. I, you know, Reach, so I've got to tell you that story. Manchester Evening News last night. Right. St- I was just had Facebook open. There's a story, I swear to God, a story in the Manchester Evening News about a guy who ordered a KFC for delivery by Uber (laughs) Eats and it was delivered to the wrong house and he's kicking off because these people in the other house ate his KFC. That's a story on the Manchester Evening News? (laughs) It didn't even happen in Manchester. It happened somewhere else. <laughs> we had there's one this two, week. There's two oh, reporters God. on that, and it's probably an 800-word story. I'm oh, not sure who God. runs the Evening Journal, but we had a cracker this week as well where they said um, RF, helicopter flying over Evesham. It does this twice a week. No. And there was an entire article on this about like the fact it be, it was noisy and that some people had complained that they could hear it through their windows. That's so I feel sorry but for the, thing is, yeah. the thing is, they posted this in the local Facebook group and all of the comments were like, is it a slow news day? This goes over <laughs> twice a week. Okay, you need to at least second source this story. I want you to get corroboration from at least another person on that street. I need you to go back to Justy or Uber. Or oh, Uber Eats commented. Uber Eats commented. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's brought me right down. (laughs) This week's guest is Alistair Bryan, who's the fact-checking lead at The Ferret and host of its FFS podcast. We chatted about everything from why trust in legacy publishers is straining at the seams to how the team keeps up with lies that break internationally but have local repercussions, and why community will always win out. But first, I asked him about the history of The Ferret. Yeah, well, the ferret is um, started in 2015, I believe, as an investigative news platform. So it was started up by a, a few prominent sort of investigative journalists around Scotland, uh, not including me. Uh, and then in 2017, we got funding from uh, Google's Digital News Initiative to start a fact-checking service. So kind of fact-checking arm of the ferret, which I was brought on board to lead, really. Um, and be it's kind of in the, in the early days such sole custodian mm-hmm. so my uh role at the ferret is to basically lead the fact checking arm of the ferret that means uh commissioning and writing fact checks we do training um various you know the kind of call outs and other projects that we take on involving fact checking that's kind of my broad remit um but yes yeah, so it sits alongside the investigative stuff essentially it's an incredibly broad remit yeah to be brought on as kind of the sole custodian for fact checking sounds like an impossible task so it's it that funding allowed you to kind of expand the coverage and actually do this fact checking side so Mm. to what extent does that what form does that fact checking wing of ferret take well yeah when we initially started we had to sort of launch it from scratch so the our sort of bread and butter you would say is fact checking 
essentially, broadly speaking, public figures and politicians uh, about claims, you know, factual claims they make. So that means if somebody makes a claim in Parliament, if some politician makes a claim on the radio, uh, on TV, various media, but then also just given the as things have developed and as we've gone on, that's that's involved a lot more fact-checking memes, fact-checking, mm. you know, unattributed statements and videos, images, um, anything. I, the, the sort of broad sort of spectrum of misinformation that <laughs> surrounds us. Stickers on on a lamppost or an unsolicited leaflet through your door, things like that, anything. Yeah. Really. And how do you communicate that to the, to the audience? Well, in a number of ways. Prim primarily, as I say, we do written fact-checks. So we do, uh, we'll take a claim on or a series of claims that are in the news or we've picked up through our various sort of misinfo media monitoring mm -hmm. um prime, like our kind of main criteria for that would be how shared they have been so you know there's lots of stuff lots of rubbish that flies around particularly online um that a lot of people don't see uh you know maybe it's just somebody's relatives posting something on facebook they don't have a massive platform they may have got it from somewhere that and we try and find out where they've got it from and then we'll fact check that so um you might have seen in as you kind of go about your day-to-day -day business on social media, you may see often these days things like um, claims being that, that on, on Facebook, for example, or on Google, um, which will have a little tag underneath saying this has been uh, found to be lacking context or whatever by independent fact checker. That's sort of our, our position there. So obviously we do international stuff as and when it sort of intersects with Scottish issues, uh, Brexit or on Scottish independence. Our aim essentially is the kind of best outcome for us is every time that claim gets put into a conversation on social media or whatever, then somebody, one of our kind of army of supporters or people who are, they'll, they'll see it and then they'll sort of chase it. So it kind of, you know, seems to follow the thing around, which we've had some success in with some of our bigger fact checks, but mm. again, it's a difficult process. Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, there's that phrase, um, a lichen running around the world before the truth has got its boots on. That's a really good example. I actually, uh, when I was doing notes for this interview, I actually thought about that because that's a really good example is that's a, a quote that's widely attributed to Mark Twain but it seemingly there's not that much evidence to suggest that he did say that. So it's a good example of misinformation, that quote itself. And actually that, that you've preempted my next question there, which is how is the kind of the, the process of fact-checking and actually disproving some of that misinformation, how has that evolved over the past few years as we've seen new social platforms emerge as kind mm. of the, the ones that we are all familiar with as kind of being these, these hotbeds of misinformation as they sort of taken, I suppose, steps like the ones you mentioned before to label to label misinformation. Yeah. How has the process of that changed? And has it made it more difficult or kind of, is it just, does it require more resources to do effectively? I think it's, it, it's a nuanced kind of thing. I think in some ways it's a lot, it's more difficult because the, particularly during COVID, mm. uh, the volume of misinformation has just skyrocketed. And the mainstreaming of really previously like niche misinformation has been significant. We, we basically took got rid of all of our other work for the first few months of the COVID pandemic and just fact check COVID claims for about two or three months. As you, you mentioned about different platforms, different social media platforms, that there's a sort of weird stratification of who uses media platforms. So this is gonna be quite a long answer. But, oh no, um, that's great. The, the, for example, Facebook is now is used by older people, not, all, not exclusively, but primarily that's where they get, that's their, their primary uh, social media platform is Facebook. Then Instagram is used by sort of slightly younger cohort, but then there's things like Snapchat and TikTok. So people are getting their misinformation from different places. So um, it becomes even more difficult to keep a, keep a, have a handle on it. Particularly, for example, if you're a parent or you're a young person who's got a, an elderly relative, you're getting your information 
and your misinformation or your accurate information from different places yeah. from totally kind of almost like not connected platforms. So yeah, that is a really, really difficult thing to do. And each one of these platforms has a different level of um, verification and effort they put into verifying things and, and, and working with fact checkers. Each platform has a different way of uh, spread information spreading. So WhatsApp, yeah. for example, spread the information is spread group by group in a very insular way. So it's, so it's much more difficult for fact checkers to get into, you know, because unless there's public groups, which are limited in size, they can't really, they don't know what's being shared around, you know, whereas Twitter is really open. So you can see everything that's been posted on Twitter and the other, and each platform has kind of sits somewhere on that scale. So in that way, it's very scary and very difficult, but at the same time, the fact checking community is very, very hardworking and very diligent and very, um, you know, there's some brilliant people, tech people working in it. So there's far more monitoring solutions than there were when I first started mm. and that was in 2017. So fact checkers are getting better. I'm scared <laughs> of the volume yeah. of work that must be coming down the pipe to you. So to what extent then are fact checkers reliant on kind of collaboration, both internally and with kind of the wider fact checking community? You've mentioned there kind of people are getting better at fact checking. Is that in concert with other organizations? I th well, fact checkers, I mean, just in a purely like practical sense, fact checkers have to work with other people because they mm -hmm. need experts to tell them what's, you know, <laughs> what's right. <laughs> so we have to, we, we rely very, very heavily on, on experts that we, um, you know, be that in, be that in, in, a, in, in, you know, we're talking about health uh, misinformation. That is a situation where we, I don't know, I'm not a health expert at all. So I rely mm -hmm. very heavily on experts or even just people to give you the kind of context around an issue. Cause sometimes I'll be fact checking a thing that I really don't know. This, you know, a very complex sort of um, economic issue or whatever, then you need to rely on people to kind of give you the, the background to even get into the thing itself. We, we're a member of the international fact checking network, which is a body that sort of upholds standards of like accreditation standards for fact checkers. So that means um, standards of actual work, the methodologies, standards of uh, transparency of funding of source. That's a very, very active community. And there's a sort of annual conference and a lot of people work together in different projects and, you know, help each other. And there's just in a sort of informal or formal way, help each other out when uh, you're working on fact checks, which cross countries, because obviously misinformation goes around the world and it's not stopped by borders no absolutely and it's honestly it's, it's both laudable and admirable and also kind of optimistic this idea that everyone's kind of coming together to do this in terms of actually countering that misinformation obviously the ferret has a as a scottish bent to everything it's kind of that's why you're putting its resources how are you actually countering that you mentioned the army of of people out there but how are you communicating with those people and how do you almost pitch yourself the reason we start was kind of in a scottish context anyway so we start it was in a sort of post-Brexit, post-Scottish independence referendum situation. So what we felt was, because there's organizations, amazing organizations in the UK, like Full Fact uh, mm. and, you know, Channel 4 Fact Check. There's uh, Fact Check NI in Northern Ireland. There's um, the journals, .ie's Fact Check in Ireland. You know, there's loads of fact checkers around the UK, but Scotland didn't really have any, particularly post-Scottish independence referendum. There was a real lack of trust in the media. Mm. Um, be that because people thought that the media didn't wasn't being wasn't independently owned or it was being it was uh, wasn't coming down neutrally it was kind of all on one side uh, and we, so we felt like it's a bit of an opportunity to hopefully try help to restore some trust in media and help to restore some trust in that kind of information so it's in terms of presenting yourself and in terms of getting kind of a, a group of people to trust you it's, it just takes time and it takes like just like consistent work we I think there's always going to be people who don't trust the media, like full stop. Yeah, yeah. 
um, and there's always going to be there's going to be some a, a much bigger group of people who will trust trust the media like with some skepticism or they might not trust certain sites with others i think what the ferrets managed to do quite well and fact services as well is be seen to be slightly separate from that and mm. so that's that's not only because of the work we do but it's also the kind of way we present our work so as i mentioned before things like with fact checking side of things um our methodology is available on our website so you can say you can see how we come up with claims like how, how we come up with things to fact check where they come from what we fact check what we don't fact check um how we you know what what, are, what sort of research we do what, what how we how we come to the, the conclusions we come to mm. um our fact checks have verdicts on them in terms of we go from a scale of true to false um but we say in our, in our methodology that you can disagree with that all you want and it's absolutely up to you everything we say is sourced so everything we say has got a link to it you try or hopefully it's either sourced and if it's not uh if we try our best to link literally hyperlink to source the direct source if we can which is most of the time yeah um, absolutely so people can just do the work themselves and they can just look it up themselves and then they might say oh you should why didn't you bring this up what about this and usually we'll seen it um and made a decision based on how it, how relatively important it is or whether it's repeating another point or whatever but it allows people to they can say they disagree with us all they want but they can't really say you didn't tell us how you did it <laughs> yeah you didn't put the work of, in, you know, yeah. opaque because i think that's one of the things that is really frustrates me and has frustrated people at the fair in general about the mainstream media not to use that as a um you know denigrative term but mm -hmm. it's quite often you know the net, very rarely do they properly source the stuff they say in 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 print media certainly obviously can't be in the online versions of those things so often it's just we say this thing you have to trust Therefore, us. it's true yeah yeah and people don't think that anymore because people can do people find it so much more easy to, to do their own research and to yeah go wherever they want in terms of just like uh, investigating their, a certain issue they're interested in so mm. i think that level of transparency is really important also the transparency of who you're funded by who you're owned by obviously the ferret is a uh, cooperative so it's owned by its members so our, our the people who sign up for three pounds a month they are essentially the owners of the ferret and they help us so we all make decisions together there's we have agms we have regular events where they can feed into decision making things like that but for our first investigation this is before i came on board but our first yeah. investigation was into fracking so the ferret crowdfunded uh, a few thousand pounds to investigate fracking. That was kind of launch of the whole project. And that was an uh, investigation that was chosen by members. See, that's really interesting. Really bringing so, that part of that transparency is kind of bringing yeah, the exactly. community in right at the start of the commissioning process as well. Yeah, exactly. So that, and that's the, you know, and, and the, in terms of, I've not got the numbers in front of you right now, but a significant proportion of the things we fact check come from suggestions from members mm. and from, from people, just general readers. And another thing we do is try to respond to people in, in as long as it's not abuse which you know obviously every media organization gets a bit of yeah absolutely. Uh, we try to respond and if someone's got a question particularly about a fact check they'll either email me or they'll tweet us or whatever and i will almost always if it's not again some sort of abusive take will respond to them and uh so they can see and, and we do corrections as well we obviously we make errors and correct that's another part of our accreditation with the international fact checking network because we have to part of the accreditation thing is you've got to show that you have made corrections so that, you know mm. because everybody makes corrections at some and it's less of a sort of adver adversarial way of doing things and i've worked in uh the mainstream media before and organizations like that and it was a little not intentionally and the work that was done by the journalists in these places was brilliant but there was there's much less of a feeling of like it being a connected thing to its audience yeah definitely 
with far more separation. One thing I'm interested to find out then is how do you, how do people typically discover the ferret then? And then, you know, you can start building that trusted relationship with them. Where are people, what's the entry point for that relationship? That is a good question. There's a few, I mean, I think it's sort of, there's a few different areas. There's, we do, we do quite a lot of different things. So if you take the ferret broadly, like not just the fact checking side of things, we do big, we have, you know, we have regular uh, content, which we partner with uh, mainstream media, you know, so news websites, so that websites like that, the Herald in Scotland, uh, the Sunday National, which is newspaper in Scotland, we do uh, regular, we do, we, do, we do big investigation series. And, and so, for example, we did, uh, our last one was at the end of last year with the Herald, which was called mm. How Green is Scotland, which was about uh, Scotland's kind of green credentials and how it was doing. That was a sort of five uh, day front page splashes of stuff. Nice. So people come to it through that who might not have heard of us. Uh, similarly, people will just, they'll just come to us through articles of ours that have done well. So that you kind of traditional thing where they, they'll see an article of ours, they'll like it and they want to, they want to look at another one, then they'll hit the paywall and then, you know, time to sign up. Uh, we also do kind of these public events. So we host, uh, we, we sort of do an AGM, which uh, this is obviously pre um, pandemic times. They were a lot more elaborate, but uh, you know, they might, there might be a series of panels or uh, training workshops, films, this sort mm. of thing. And people come along to that and it's, a, you know, kind of more of a word of mouth thing. We do, we do training for young journalists on fact checking mm. methods. We do training for the, the public about how to basically stop, you know, not fall for things on social media. These are tailored to different age groups and different uh, areas. So we also stuff, you know, things for charities, for schools. That really helps us to bring, again, talk about credibility and also brings people into the process a lot more. Do you see that there's a, a move across the industry to be more kind of community owned and operated? I'm thinking about places like Tortoise, which obviously they bring the community very, very much into the kind of their their um, arena. They, you know, some of the news, bigger newspapers now are sort of making that direct one to one relationship with journalists a core tenet mm -hmm. of any subscription. Are we yeah. seeing a, a much needed move towards greater transparency across the industry or is it still something that we need to really kind of push forward? I'd say in some ways we are seeing a move towards transparency, certainly in terms of uh, what you mentioned before, like there's really, you know, I'm sure you'll know that like we reference things like Bristol Cable, yeah. uh, the Manchester, Manchester Meteor is a good example of that. There's one in Glasgow where I am now called Greater Govan Hill Magazine, which is a sort of community magazine that's uh, been really good. They've been won some awards in the last year. Uh, there's the Dublin Enquirer. There's, yeah. uh, as I say, there's just loads of organizations that and loads of groups that are very similar to us in terms of the way that they organize themselves. But they're all still fairly small. And, the, if, and, and, you, and you think, yeah, you're mentioning in terms of like the, one, the way that mainstream media is almost aping some of the things that the new yeah, media sort of does. Yeah, it's kind of in going terms of that. bottom to top. Yeah, in like terms you see of like loads of newsletters being used, loads of like the kind of making the journalists into more of like personalities and mm. as, as a sort of making them a bit more accessible. Tackling that problem in the media is about tackling ownership of the media. And, oh, yeah, and that becomes like a really really big conversation that's probably not one for us today but you know, <laughs> yeah, like, we we couldn't we, fit that in if we had a week and a yeah, half just solid exactly. i mean we've, we've seen even looking at the you know the current uh party gate scandal mm. with uh i don't know when this is going to go out but the party gate scandal that uh, boris johnson uh, is involved in you know we know which newspapers and which ones are reporting on it and we know which ones aren't mm -hmm. so much and we know why <laughs> There is there is a problem with the with with the, with media ownership and mm. and with uh, like the kind of homogenized ownership of a lot of the media, you know, loads of new 
independent media came out of Brexit or came out of independence or came out of uh, Donald Trump or came out and serves just to promote a completely unbalanced view. And, you know, it doesn't use sources and doesn't, you know what I mean? It's like, so yeah, the, but it's the kind of work that kind needs of, to be there anyway. It's feeding it that confirmation bias that the audience wants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, can't, I think the, like the something being new, I think, as you say, community owned is really good, but mm. everyone has to be kind of judged on its merits and some of them are better than others anyway. We're sort of, we're running out of time and I, I want to keep as much of this in as I can because it's it's basically everything that Media Voices likes to espouse is that transparency, that community side as well. So no, I'm, de- I'm delighted yeah. to hear that you kind of, um, that you're you're pressing on with that and it's and it's working out. Uh, just as a, a penultimate question, then I wondered what the role of the podcast is in terms of your overall mission because you do have. Is it the FFS mm. the podcast? FFS, sure, yeah, nice. Um, yeah, well, uh, the podcast we again, again we got we got we got a little bit of funding to launch that, mm. and we felt that well, it had a kind of few, a few different aims. One was to slightly personalize the voice of FFS and part yeah. of that's what we talked about before is to kind of uh, make these things a little bit more like these are this is the person that's doing this work this is what we this is how we came to the conclusion we chatting through it and so in it, when you chat through these things it opens up little avenues that might not work in when it's just written on the page for example um, and gives a little bit more sort of background as to, to the methodology of coming up with a thing uh, also we like to, it helps us we interview people on issues like misinformation currents things about transparency and um so we'll get perspectives from other parts of the world and other kind of experts on issues which we wouldn't be able to really cover ourselves. And also, I mean, just on a very basic level, podcasts as a platform are, you know, enormously successful and popular. And also they don't operate in exactly the same way as, you know, people don't, people don't like interchangeably look at a podcast or a fact check. No, I <laughs> Some know people want to, want to in, imbibe a podcast while they're on their commute, as you say, or, but you know, that's why we're on this podcast now is because you can have a little bit more of a wide reaching, wide ranging conversation. Yeah. It can go in different and, directions. It doesn't have to stick yeah. to that very, very narrow remit. Exactly. And also it's a little bit more lighthearted. Our podcast is a little bit more like, well, hopefully a bit funny and a bit more entertaining, like a bit, you know, a bit less sort of like, these are the facts and this is why this is true or false it's a bit more of a kind of a jaunt through misinformation yeah. <laughs> <and occurrence. laughs> that's a real so, nice way of putting uh, it yeah. i mean quite often i have people you know you see people sharing our fact checks and i'm like i don't think you actually read that all the way through it's <laughs> <laughs> fair enough i mean those are stories that you see and don't read all the way through but you know so and then just as a final question sorry to spring this on you i should have said this in the email mm-hmm. we ask all our guests to recommend one piece of media could be a book a movie, um, TV show, a podcast, fact or fiction, anything that you've experienced recently that you really want to kind of boost and share with our audience? The podcast I'd like to promote is something that I've been listening to a lot recently. It's called Revolutions. Um, I can't remember who the uh, person behind it is. It's about, it's just a uh, really, really brilliantly and uh, entertainingly described history podcast about the, currently the American Revolution. They've also done the English Civil War. They're going to do uh, the French Revolution next. Good thing about it for me is that it's really digestible. American Revolution is incredibly complex. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, but he talks about it in a way that's really understandable and bite-sized. I think that is something that I can't the chimes with me. And what because what we try and do is try and be like make things that are complex kind of readable and make them kind of digestible. So he's uh, really really good at that. I nice. would like to promote the uh, the work of um, ProPublica. Yeah. The website that's one of my favorite um investigative journalism websites in the u.s they do absolutely brilliant work on um corruption and on 
the way that they, they visualize stories is really, really brilliant and really, really inspiring for journalists, I think. In case you haven't been listening, we've got a daily newsletter. This week, multiple people signed up from a very prestigious North American current affairs publication. You should be like them. Sign up. That's Seriously. true, but the way you said it was like, we had Brad Pitt sign up this week. <laughs> what was it, Brad Pitt? It was way more important than that. While you're at Voices.media, you can go to Voices.media slash support because we have big plans for the podcast. We want this to be our big year and you can contribute to that by kicking us a one-off donation or setting up a recurring payment. It means the world to us and it allows us to do stuff like buy this new microphone, which I am recording on right now. So please do head across to Voices.media slash support in order to make that happen. And finally, if you're new to the podcast, we wrote a report at the end of last year um, slaved over it just before Christmas. <laughs> so, Media Moments 2020. So. Uh, <laughs> our constant year, year confusion. <laughs> it is 2022. So, we've just done Media Moments 2021. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, Media Moments 2021 rounds up all the key moments uh, from the year, like everything from like NFTs to sort of subscription trends, print trends, magazine launches. Mm. Um, they're all in there. Um, we have actually put those pieces up on our website, voices.media slash analysis, although the case studies are still exclusive to the report. So if you want to download the report, um, you can see in our analysis section, there's links to it all over there. But until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and another tour through all the news and views from the media world. Thank you so much for listening. Please do share this with a friend and goodbye. Keep on rocking in the free world. <laughs>